0: Well last week we talked about having the right perspective at Christmas. It was kind of a big picture look at Christmas in the context of of God's plan of the ages and kind of how it all fits in. And uh, this morning I'd like us to sort of really zero in on one particular facet of God's plan and that's grace. And uh, we've sung a lot about grace already this morning and heard a lot About it, But that's kind of what I want us to focus on, and in a moment we're going to look at another non-traditional Christmas uh, passage, and I'm doing this on purpose because I want us to sort of really make sure we come at Christmas from a theological viewpoint and understand, like we talked about last week, what God is doing in His plan of the ages and, and how Christmas, what we celebrate as Christmas today, is central to that, the birth of our uh, Savior, and so sometimes familiarity uh, sort of gives a, a makes us uh, uh, dry and sort of forget the significance of things, and so we look at all the traditional Christmas texts. And we will next week. I'm going to be in Luke too, so don't don't panic. Uh, but uh, I feel like when we kind of uh, kind of overlay the teaching of Scripture as a whole to the message of Christmas, it helps us have uh, even a deeper appreciation. And then maybe we might otherwise have. Uh, so I'm calling this when grace appeared. You know, for me as a kid, I was blessed to grow up in a Christian uh, home, and uh, my uh, all my family are believers. My two sisters, my mom and dad, and um, in fact my dad uh, really led me to the Lord as a six-year-old. I had heard the gospel in churches and, of course, heard my mom uh, talk about it. She used to help uh, require us to do uh, Bible memory and teach, teach us the word in, in, in the home and in children's church. But ultimately, uh, on a Sunday night, my dad shared uh, more plainly and clearly with me the gospel message, and I trusted Christ as my Savior. But in that blessing of a context growing up in a Christian home, we always had wonderful Christmases. And I know that's not true for everybody. Many people... Uh, around the world and, and in America don't have fond memories of Christmas, but for me they were and one of the things my mom did She loved to decorate probably like some of, uh, of you ladies love to decorate and so the house was always decorated to the hilt and so one of the special things about Christmas for me as a child was when those decorations would come out and start being put around the house and they would all bring back memories and it just your memories are associated with sort of the visual uh, sights the red and the green and all the different decorations particularly the tree and one of the things that my folks did is uh throughout the christmas season you know the tree would go up early usually the saturday after thanksgiving and and then throughout the season as gifts would come in maybe they would buy a gift this was you know before the internet and stuff but as my mom would get gifts for me and my sisters or uh, aunts and uncles and grandparents would send in gifts in the mail and stuff those would go under the tree and so day by day week by week leading up to christmas the the tree would have lots of uh, presents uh, under there, and of course, my sister and I would always try to sneak in and shake the presents and try to see, peek if the wrapping wasn't taped. Uh, you know, uh, well, I had one aunt that would ship presents, and I mean, she must have used a whole roll of tape on every present because it was like Fort Knox. You couldn't get into that. You needed a chainsaw on Christmas morning to open those presents. But sometimes my mom was a little more liberal, and there'd be a little hole, and so we would try to peel back the paper and look and sometimes we'd get a little uh, too nosy and it would rip and so then we'd have to put that present away at the back of the tree and cover it with other presents and hope that mom didn't you know see it sometime before uh, Christmas uh, uh, but what was unique was then on Christmas morning that's when my family, a celebrated Christmas we always had the same tradition we would uh, the kids would always come down first my, my sisters and I, then we would wake up my parents and then we would uh, gather around and we'd see what was in the stockings and then we would read the Christmas story and um, but on Christmas morning other gifts would appear you know different maybe it was a new bicycle or something unwrapped or some new toy uh, just different things that my parents had sort of saved back as a surprise so that on Christmas morning we would we would see those things. And I got to thinking about those presents appearing. And it, it called to mind a passage in Titus, which is actually a very meaningful passage to me because it's the theme verse of our ministry with not by works ministries. Titus three five is in the midst of this passage. But two thousand years ago, on that first Christmas morning, something appeared something appeared that was far better far more valuable, far more significant than any shiny new toy or present or bicycle. It was the grace of God. Now, as we talked about last week, that's not to say that grace came into existence 2,000 years ago. Grace, of course, is an attribute of God. It's an eternal attribute of God. And like His love and mercy and justice and righteousness and holiness and all of those things, sovereignty, it exists eternally and never changes. But it, it sort of showed up in a powerful way 2,000 years ago on Christmas morning. And, you know, the theme verse in Titus, it's not part of our text that we're going to look at this morning, but the theme verse of the whole letter is Titus 2.11, which tells us the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In the same way those presents would appear Under the tree. So if you turn with me to Titus chapter 3, if you don't have your Bibles, you'll see the verses on uh, the screen. I want us to focus on what this biblical word appeared means. And Titus is an interesting letter. It's one of a collection of three letters by the Apostle Paul that we've taken to calling the pastoral letters or pastoral epistles because he wrote it near the end of his life. In fact, this was the next to the last letter that he wrote. He wrote 1 Timothy, then Titus, then 2 Timothy. Uh, And and he's giving pastoral instruction, in this case to Titus. But it's information that really affects the whole local church. By, you know, this time this was the summer of 66 AD was when Paul wrote this letter. Uh, He was martyred in 67 AD. Uh, So the church by this time was some 35 years old, give or take. And uh, they were uh, maturing, most of the epistles had been written, and most of the New Testament had been written and begun to be circulated. So uh, the church, as we know uh, know it now after 2,000 years, was beginning to take form, to, to take shape. And uh, Titus was a Greek Gentile who had come to faith under the influence of Paul and really become one of Paul's protégés. And um, He'd been with Paul since the earliest days of Paul's ministry. And as as we kind of piece together the timeline with the book of Acts and information internally from all of Paul's letters, we we know that sometime around 63 or 64, uh, Paul and Titus had left Timothy in Ephesus and traveled together, Paul and Titus, to the Greek island of Crete. And after a brief visit, Paul then left Titus in Crete to help provide leadership for the churches on uh, the island. And so this letter is Paul then writing back uh, to Crete. And uh, he wrote it again in the summer of 66 AD to kind of put this in historical perspective. By the time Paul wrote this letter that we're looking at this morning, Peter had already been martyred in 64 AD. In fact, James, the Lord's brother, had also been Martyr, James, who wrote the book of James, the first letter in the New Testament, chronologically, had been martyred in 62 AD. So things were heating up, but the church was maturing and taking form. And in these what we call the pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul deals with different aspects of the church. In First Timothy, it's, it's mostly about safeguarding doctrine, and you see the word doctrine used a lot in Paul's letter to Timothy. In his second letter to Timothy, he talks about church leadership. But you get to Titus, and it's, it's about organizational tru- structure in the church, but it's more than that because he closes out in chapter 3 with some really strong encouragement and admonition to all believers within the church to live out their faith, to live out godliness and righteousness in a practical sense. Now, we've been talking in our midweek Bible study about how the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for your sins, in that moment you become positionally righteous. You're adopted into the family of God. You're in Christ. You're declared righteous and justified before a holy God. But our position in Christ is, Though it should, it does not always translate into practice, right? We sometimes live like the old man and we forget to put on Christ and live out the new uh, nature within us. So chapter three is, is really, in the immediate context of chapter uh, of verses four through seven, is all about living out uh, the righteousness that we have by the grace of God. So when you think about it, Christmas, as we've been singing, and as uh, Jeff so eloquently saying, is all about grace. It's all about grace. Uh, God's amazing grace should motivate us to live godly lives and serve the Lord who saved us faithfully. It should motivate us to do good works. In fact, I couldn't help but throw this verse in, the verse immediately following our focal passage, which is verses 4 to 7, but verse 8 is really key in the immediate context. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. It's always a bad idea to be disobedient to God, and it's always a good idea to live in obedience uh, to God. And notice it says we should be careful. It's not guaranteed, but we're guaranteed we wouldn't be commanded so much to do it. But we're commanded so much in God's Word to live out our our lives faithfully in service to the Lord who saved us because it's possible within the old man, new man struggle within us to cater to the flesh, right? So that's the the context. The grace that we've received uh, should motivate us to righteous living. It's not a license to live unrighteously, but it's profitable. It's profitable to do good works so christmas is all about grace and this morning i want to focus on four ways uh, that uh, christmas sort of exemplifies grace if you will first thing i want you to see in our text is that christmas pictures the supreme expression of grace christmas is a picture of the supreme expression of grace look at verse four notice but when the kindness and the love of god our savior toward man appeared now whenever you see the word but it sort of clearly is connected to the previous context and in the previous context i won't put it on the screen but paul is describing how before these people that are in titus's church there in crete were believers they lived an ungodly life and then he's saying but now you're not like that anymore You've received the grace of God. You've been born again. You've been saved. And therefore, those things that are characteristic, uh, and let me just read a couple of them, uh, of unbelievers like foolishness, disobedience, deception, various lusts and pleasures, malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Those things should not be characterizing you, right? Because you've been born again. And then he's going to describe in beautiful terms that salvation and how it all began and really is all centered on that first Christmas morning in Bethlehem. But when the kindness of the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. And and this idea of appeared, we looked at a moment ago in the key verse of the whole epistle when it says the grace of God. So that kindness and love is just another way of describing the grace of God. The birth of the Christ child, Jesus, represents the, the supreme expression of grace. It's, it's grace that's on display in high definition like we uh, looked at last week. Grace was certainly very active in the Old Testament. It's been active since man sinned and God provided redemption by faith. Uh, God's grace, you can trace it all the way through the Bible. But it just burst onto the scene in living color when God became flesh and uh, dwelt among us. In Galatians, Paul explains how this high-definition expression of grace came in the fullness of the time. Notice he said, but when the fullness of the time had come. You know, I love singing and listening to the the worship team play and, and in preparation for the message during the service, I love to sit back there and listen, but I also love to just really focus on the words and... You know, one of the things I love about our worship team is they always make sure the, the songs they sing are biblically accurate. And certainly that was true today. And when we sang Hark the Herald, I couldn't help but see the line, Late in time, behold him come. Now what is that referring to, late in time? Late in time. Well, it's talking about the fullness of the time. Now again, from God's perspective, like we've talked about, God is eternal. So God lives in the eternal now. He doesn't live in a linear sense the way we do. But God spoke time, space, and matter into existence, and He created the universe of time that we now live in. And from our perspective, things happen linearly. And in that sense, the coming of Christ was, in fact, the fullness of the time. How do we know that? Well, if you look at God's plan of the ages here, here we are in the church age, and that is the fullness of the time. The only age left to come is that kingdom age, that time when God inaugurates the long-awaited promised kingdom that we're talking about in our Bible study hour on Sundays, and Christ comes back, takes the throne, and makes all things new. So what a blessing it is to be living in this fullness of the time. We don't look forward to a sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world embodied in the, in the foreshadowing of the sacrificial system and the goats and the lambs and the other things, we actually look back at it because it's happened from our uh, perspective. Paul calls this fullness of time a dispensation. He says in the dispensation of the fullness of times in Ephesians 1. This word dispensation we talked about last week. Um, and, and, and I didn't put the Greek word on the screen last week, but I thought I would this week. It's the word oikonomia. It's where we get our English word economy, and it, it refers to a stewardship, an order, a plan, or a program, and the word oikonomia is used seven times in the New Testament, four times by Paul, and three times by Jesus in Luke 16 when he's talking about the parable of the unjust steward, but Paul talks about this economy, this dispensation, as being a dispensation of the grace of God. In other words, it's a time when the grace of God appeared uh, to us. Not, again, came into existence, but it just sort of burst onto the scene in unmistakable, in an unmistakable way. I mean, there's no way you can think about the salvation of of man that was made possible through the virgin birth of this little baby born in the most humble of means there's no way you can connect those dots without seeing grace all over the place right I mean like the little video we showed last week Christ could have come as a victorious warrior he could have come as a king he could have come but he didn't come as any of those things he came as a baby now he's gonna come back as a king uh, to be sure Uh, but He appeared. What does this word appeared mean exactly? Again, another song, as we were singing, it occurred to me, you know, uh, when we sang, "Oh, come all ye faithful, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Who's the word of the Father? John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He is the word. And he came and he appeared. He appeared. Paul uses this word appeared twice in Titus here. And then once again, as I've said in our theme, the theme verse of the whole epistle and the word appeared is the Greek word epiphino epiphino. And it's interesting. It's only used four times in the whole new Testament, two of them right here in Titus, but it means to display light or illuminate to shine. That's the way it's normally referenced. In fact, uh, one of the other two times it's used is in Zechariah's song. You remember that in Luke chapter 1 and Zechariah sings to give light. That's to that's epiphino, to appear is the way Paul uses it in Titus. Uh, to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the Way of peace. Who's Christ? The Prince of Peace. How do we have peace? By believing in Him. Romans 5.1 Wherefore by uh, grace we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 I think I butchered that verse, but that's the gist of it. Um, And then the only other time it's used is in Acts 27 in a historical context where it kind of makes sense because uh, in the context of the uh, shipwreck on Malta it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared... For many days, epiphino, same word. So that's the perfect word to use here because it's in fact describing exactly that. There was no light. There was no stars or anything to give light. It was cloudy and overcast because of the storm. So now if you overlay that meaning of the word back to Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. It has shown, as it were. It has brought light to a dark and, and sin Uh, stricken world. And that's what the world needed was grace. And at Christmas, we have the supreme expression where God's grace shone for all the world uh, to see. And that is the testimony of Scripture. People that may, may not even have a Bible, but most people understand the essence of Christmas was about a baby being born who grew up to save the world. Number two Christmas not only pictures the supreme expression of grace, but it provides the simplest explanation of grace. I mean, you can't get any simpler than the way Titus makes it here in this passage. You know, people love to to distort and confuse and mess up the gospel. After 2,000 years, Satan's done a masterful job of propagating all kinds of false gospels and twisted and distorted. People have added things to it. They've taken things away from it. But it can't get any simpler than the way Titus describes it, or Paul describes it here in Titus. He says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Again, that's the theme verse of our ministry, because it really is that simple. And Christmas provides the simplest of all explanations for grace. It's so simple, even a, ba- even a child can understand a baby in a manger. It's not complicated. And neither is salvation. You cannot work for it. If you're here today or you're watching this video and you think you can enter heaven (coughs) based on your own merits, based on your own good works, (coughs) somehow you can be good enough to overcome your sin problem, you're missing the boat. Uh, Grace screams as loudly as possible, you can't do it. It's the same Greek construction here, not by works, that's used in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is of the gift of God, not of works. Now in English it's translated of, but it's actually the same Greek preposition here. It's the Greek preposition ek. And the Greek preposition ek has all kinds of meanings, but in, in this context it really means by. It can mean origin or cause or reason. It's it's used nearly a thousand times in the New Testament, 900 or so, I think. Uh, And so prepositions can have a number of meanings like out, by, on, among, and so forth. But in Ephesians 2 and in Titus 3, it has this idea of the origin or the cause. Not by works, not as a result of works, not caused by works, but by grace only. So the origin of our salvation is grace. The cause of our salvation is grace. The reason we are saved is grace. Say it however you want to say it. But Christmas is all about grace. And it's the simplest explanation of grace. Now we need to define grace. I know I've defined this many times in different messages. But grace is simply free, undeserved blessing. And don't miss that first word there. Free. And it's easiest to understand grace when you compare it uh, to its counterparts of justice and mercy. So justice is getting what you deserve, right? If you uh, are pulled over for speeding and you were speeding, if you get a citation, that's justice, right? Now we all pray that we don't get justice, right? We pray for a warning. But if we were to get a ticket, that's justice, right? Mercy, on the other hand, is the withholding of punishment, The withholding of punishment. So if when we're pulled over for speeding, we were to get our heart's desire after much prayer and uh, fasting for those one minute that it takes the officer to walk from his car up to your window, uh, and instead we were to get a warning, that's mercy. We didn't get what we deserved. We didn't get a ticket. That's mercy. But grace is getting something you don't deserve, a blessing, a gift that is undeserved. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is withholding punishment that you you deserve. And grace is getting blessing that you don't deserve. And in Christ, we have all three, don't we? We have all three because Christ paid the penalty so justice would be served. Blood was shed. The atonement accomplished the satisfaction of God's wrath so His justice was served. He then also, if we believe in Him and receive His payment on our behalf, we don't have to spend eternity in hell. That's mercy, the withholding of punishment. But not only that, we get the gift, the free gift of grace, which is eternal life in heaven. No hell, we get heaven. Mercy, grace, and justice is accomplished at the foot of the cross. So grace is free, undeserved blessing. Free We don't like that word free because we've been conditioned after 2,000 years to think you've got to do something. You've got to bring something to the table. You've got to know what you're getting into. You can't just get something as valuable as eternal life for free. No way. That's just not fair, right? Uh, Well, that's the whole point. And that's what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion on the world, in the world, on the face of the planet. What? Every other religion says you can do something. In fact, it says you have to do something. You have this checklist approach. Christianity admits right up front, you can't. We're all in the same boat together. We're all sinners. We cannot save ourselves. It's got to be a gift. And if it's a gift, it's got to be free. Because if it's not free, it's not a gift, right? I had someone uh, at a conference I was speaking at years ago. uh, I had uh, at our Not By Works resource table where I had all of our books and DVDs and things. I had some signs put up. And I said, it was something to the effect of, it's been a while, but it was something to the effect of, buy four DVDs, get one free. And someone came up to me to make a point and said, I'm here for my free DVD. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you said you have a free DVD. Oh, I said, well, you've got to buy four. And then they go, well, then it's not free. So guess what I did at the next conference? I changed my sign because they were exactly right. If you got to bring something to the table, it's not free. So I said, buy four, get five. But you don't get one free. And so that's that's a misnomer. And a lot of people think of salvation in that way, right? They think, you know, you've got to do something. It might be 80% God or 90% God or even 99% God, but I've got to do something. I've got to make a commitment or a pledge or a promise, or I've got to stop doing this or forsake that or never do that again or promise to do that, or I've got to surrender or make him Lord or put him in charge. There's some kind of me doing something. But the unambiguous, simple testimony of Scripture, from cover to cover, word for word, is that salvation is paid for by the blood of Christ. It's a gift. That's what makes it a gift. Look at what Paul said. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but instead believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Or Romans 11, Paul says, if it's by grace and that it's no longer works, they're mutually exclusive. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, then it's no longer grace because work would no longer be work. But we're saved by grace. That's what Paul tells us in Titus. In Romans 5, Paul said, The grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Or in Romans 6.23, this is the New American Standard here because the word gift is literally free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that word free. Or Romans 3:23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but being justified freely by his grace. What does free mean? Free. You know, I looked up the Greek word free and you know what it means? Free. There you go. <laughs> Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's why the Bible ends with this beautiful invitation, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come, just like Jesus said in Matthew 11, uh, come unto me, all you who labor and are related. And notice this, let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Freely. It's a free gift. It doesn't really get any simpler than that. Now, you can complicate it. You can say a bunch of yeah buts. Yeah, but you got to surrender. Or yeah, but you got to make him Lord." Or yeah, but you've got to commit your life. You know there's not one verse in the entire Bible that says you commit your life to Christ to be saved? Never. It says 160 times, "Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So not only is Christmas, does it picture the supreme expression and it provides the simplest explanation, but of course it also presents the sole executor, of grace and that's jesus himself paul goes on to say in verse 6 whom he poured out on us abundantly through jesus christ our savior how is that grace made available to us through christ (laughs) only jesus is the executor the trustee the administrator the guardian if you will of god's grace here's the verse that i Stumbling to quote a moment ago, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in Romans 5 when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No Christ, no grace. No Christ, no Christmas. No grace, no Christmas. He goes on, for as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, notice the capital M there, many will be made righteous. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who's him? Christ. Christmas presents the sole executor. There's no other executor. No one else can administer this grace, not the sacraments of Roman Catholicism, not your baptism in your Episcopal church, not your good works, not your heritage. If you believe in, you know, Calvinistic uh, heritage of because my parents were believers, I'm automatically in. No, only through Christ individually to you. That's why Paul put it this way in his first of three pastoral epistles. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come into the world to help sinners save themselves or get them most of the way there. He came in uh, to save us. And that's why I love Jeff's song because it reminds us that Bethlehem is, is not just about Christmas, it's about the cross. There is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In the early days of the church, Peter put it this way, There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. Even Jesus himself, again, said it pretty clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's, Christmas presents the sole executor of grace. Again, why did he have to come and be born of a virgin? So that he could grow up and save the world from sin. And then in the last verse of this text in Titus, we see not only does Christmas picture the supreme expression of grace and provide the simplest explanation of grace and present the sole executor, but it portrays the secure expectation of grace because what good is a gift if it's going to break down right what good is a gift if it's just going to get rusty and old and tired and eventually be sold at a garage sale and wind up in the dump someday the gift that christmas represents in christ is secure it's an eternal gift that's why it's called eternal salvation notice what paul says that having been justified by his grace We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hope was born on Christmas. It's not an empty hope, not a fleeting hope. Like we talked about, uh, our hope is in the Lord from Hebrews. It's a secure hope because of who Christ is and what He did. Notice Peter put it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This living hope represents an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't get the prospect of eternal life or the potential for eternal life. God doesn't give you the possibility of eternal life, He gives you eternal life. And if eternal life could ever be lost, Jesus gave it the worst possible name you could give something. And in fact, it was dishonest. He gave you et- eternal life as a present possession. We get eternal life the moment we believe the gospel. Eternal life isn't something you get when you die. You've already had it. In my case, I got saved at age 6. I'm 52, so what's that 46 years I've had eternal life? (laughs) And it just so happens that the first 46 years so far of my eternal life have been lived in this old physical body that's decaying like all uh, physical flesh. And someday this body will put on immortality and incorruption, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Someday I'll have my glorified eternal body without flesh and blood because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. But it'll still be me and I'll still be enjoying eternal life. It'll just be instead of enjoying it here, having to shovel snow from time to time and, and having to endure all of the craziness of this world and having to endure, you know, rights being taken away and things like that and having to see Satan at work. I'll enjoy my eternal life in heaven and someday on earth in the kingdom, if unless the Lord comes back in my lifetime, then it'll be pretty quick. I won't have a whole lot of time in heaven. I'll be back here on earth before long. But it's eternal. You see what I'm saying? We get eternal life the moment you believe the gospel. And, uh, and, and that's a secure hope. Jesus said in John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, in other words, or surely, surely, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So if you've trusted in Christ, that's your hope, and nothing can take you out of the family of God. In Hebrews 10, we've looked at this verse a lot in our series, and we haven't even got to chapter 10 yet, but it's such a powerful verse. Hold fast the confession of our hope without waiving, for he who promised is faithful. This secure expectation that is portrayed by Christmas should motivate us Instead of doubting and worrying and wondering, am I really a child of God? Well, I blew it yesterday. Maybe I'm not saved. And spending all of our time wondering, we need to confidently remember the faithfulness of God and remember the secure expectation of our hope in Christ. So when grace appeared that first Christmas morning, it pictured the supreme expression of grace in high definition, it's a very simple explanation. You need Him because you can't do it yourself. it, It introduces us to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the sole executor of grace. And it portrays, because of what He offers when He defeated death, hell, and the grave, the secure expectation of grace. So here's my... Uh, takeaway. Uh, you know, we, we've all heard the clever saying, keep Christ in Christmas. A g- good advice, definitely a bumper uh, sticker worthy, right? But this year, how about this? Let's keep grace in Christmas. Let's remember that Christmas is all about grace. Mm-hmm. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this incredible Uh, teaching right here in the midst of of Titus and this pastoral epistle. Thank you for what those verses have meant to me through the years. And Lord, thank you that when we look at them through the eyes of Christmas, it just really awakens us to the beauty and wonder uh, that is Christmas and how it represents your grace. Lord, we pray if there's one within the sound of my voice that has not come to know you through your Son by faith, that today in simple childlike faith they would trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins and is the only hope for forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that, Lord, these words from Scripture would resonate in our hearts, that your Spirit would bring them to our remembrance throughout the week to come and indeed throughout all the Christmas season and beyond as we really grow to appreciate and walk and live in your grace. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.